As the vaccination rollout continues across the country to the most vulnerable among us, one population group is still in the dark about the possible effects of a shot. It's a problem that public health officials and pharmaceutical companies have wrestled with in the past. But this current pandemic could be the time to deliver on a need for pregnant women and their children. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. Calgary's Carrie Rayfuse is one of the first in the world to receive the COVID-19 vaccine as a breastfeeding mother. I didn't want to get it at first, um, but then once I started looking at the actual research, my opinion changed very quickly and I was uh, very eager to get it. The respiratory therapist returned from her maternity leave to the hospital last month and chose to be vaccinated. My exposure risk was very high. And then my risk of getting uh, critically ill with COVID is likely low, um, but I'm also seeing very vulnerable patients throughout the day. Because COVID vaccines have not been tested on pregnant or breastfeeding women, some say they should not be offered the shot until we have more data. A day after that story aired on Global Edmonton, Pfizer and BioNTech announced it started an international study of their COVID-19 vaccine with 4,000 pregnant women. I mean, I think this is good news. This means that, you know, all pregnant women, their providers are going to have real evidence to guide their decision. That's Carly Krubner. Um, So I'm a policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, and I'm also um, associate faculty at the Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. Krubner has been working in this space for years, and so you can imagine her response when Pfizer and BioNTech made the announcement. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a great development. Um, I wish it had happened sooner, actually, because as you may know, many women who are pregnant or breastfeeding have already had the opportunity to get vaccinated. And so it'd be wonderful if we already had more data to offer them. But I think that this is a it's a good development to actually try and close the evidence gap so that uh, women aren't having to make these decisions without it. That begs the question, why didn't this happen sooner? Yeah, you know, there, there are longstanding problems in the space of biomedical research where we have often left um, pregnant people behind. Um, Either uh, research is done much later or never really happens and we have to just kind of look at observational use um, once it's in the clinical space. Um, In this case, you know, there was a lot of um, sort of big pushes from those of us who have worked in the space of trying to have equitable evidence in pregnancy. Um, And I think there were a number of things happening here. Uh, The biggest delay that happened was that we didn't have the animal data. So there's a a step called development and reproductive toxicology that usually um, happens before you start enrolling uh, human pregnant people in clinical trials. So that was one of the the reasons cited by by, um, the biotechs, by the pharmaceutical companies as to why this didn't happen sooner. you know, hopefully in the future we can not repeat that mistake, get that animal data much sooner so that it's not an unnecessary barrier to doing much needed uh, evidence generation. When you say the, the animal data, what what exactly does does that entail? Like, is that is that taking um, pregnant mammals, I guess, since they're the closest, uh, you know, biologically to humans and, and test them for the vaccine? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, there's different types of animal models that we'd look at, and we just try to get a sense of, you know, are we seeing any risk signals that would give us pause, um, just to try and mitigate any kind of potential risk before we move into to human populations. Speaking of risk, what are the known risks or outcomes of when pregnant women or lactating women are infected by 
the novel coronavirus? Yeah, so there have been some really um, disturbing signs coming from the data that um, those who are pregnant are at increased risk of hospitalization, of being admitted to the ICU, um, potentially higher uh, mortality rates, um, as well as preterm labor. Um, so, you know, there are some places that are even putting uh, pregnancy in and of itself as an underlying condition that would put you at more severe risk. Um, and so that's another reason why we, we so desperately need to have vaccines that we can be confident in and safely use in pregnancy because there are risks of remaining unprotected in the face of, of this virus circulating. So my understanding of, of, of how COVID-19 works and, and, it, and it, it is that it doesn't it's a respiratory virus and that's in that that is how you catch it but then it can go on to affect multiple systems in the body how does that play in or or how does that play out uh or do we know how that plays out in pregnant women and in the fetuses that they're carrying? Yeah, so, you know, we're still trying to fully understand the pathogenesis of this virus um, in everybody. It's, it's um, confounded a lot of researchers that are more familiar with uh, other types of both coronaviruses and, and respiratory illnesses. But as you mentioned, you know, this, we are seeing COVID-19 affecting multiple organ systems. Um, there's still ongoing work trying to understand the implications of, of what's called long COVID, where we're starting to see people still suffering symptoms months after the, the infection has cleared. Um, and so I think, you know, we don't fully understand yet what this virus does, um, but we do know that there are a number of physiological changes that happen in pregnancy. Um, there are sort of adaptations that the immune system makes um, over the course of gestation. Um, the way that the circulatory system works is slightly different in pregnancy. Um, and we've also seen with other respiratory illnesses, for instance, influenza, that it can be more severe in pregnancy, particularly later on um, in that third trimester, uh, where it can be much more <laughs> difficult to, uh, to, to breathe, um, particularly with those types of infections. So, you know, that's some of the reason why, why we were worried. Um, and we're starting to see the data pan out that it is in fact a bit riskier uh, to pregnant people compared to their non-pregnant peers. So the novel coronavirus is still, uh, there's still a lot to be learned about it. A lot to be, uh, there's still a lot of unknowns there. Are there still unknowns about pregnancy and childbirth? Because the last time I was involved in one, I was being born. Yeah, I mean, there. this is a huge space to, to better understand um, reproduction, to understand how we can prevent um, adverse pregnancy outcomes, adverse uh, birth outcomes. Um, so, you know, there tends to be a lot of uh, unanswered questions. Um, you know, we see even generally uh, first trimester pregnancy loss is, um, is pretty high in some places, you know, between one in three, one in four pregnancies in that first trimester um, don't continue on to term. Um, and we still don't have a very good understanding of why that is. Um, so, you know, there's, there's lots of unanswered questions in pregnancy, um, generally speaking, um, but especially in the space of um, how to appropriately treat or prevent certain types of medical conditions uh, in pregnancy, since there's been so little research done in that space. Carly, these various pharmaceutical companies are using different technologies for their vaccines. Is there is there a cause for concern because of, of these different technologies, if it's mRNA or whatnot? Yeah, I mean, so there are these novel platforms, the mRNA uh, vaccines. Um, you know, I think that gave some people a little bit of pause. But again, just from a biological mechanism, um, we're not seeing a whole lot of risk, um, at least in terms of what could could be possible. Um, you know, 
you always want to check, especially if there could be, you know, inflammatory response or any kind of adverse effects that, you know, whether or not there might be potential fetal risk associated with that. So, you know, we, we want to do our homework and make sure that these are, you know, have a good safety profile to continue offering them. But um, these are the types of vaccines that we would worry about, you know, and, and it's worth mentioning that even though sort of the general mantra is, you know, oh, live vaccines in, in pregnancy, the live attenuated ones, uh, we worry about a little bit more. Um, in the case of, of really deadly outbreaks for like yellow fever, for example, so we have a very good, um, very effective yellow fever vaccine, but it does use live attenuated uh, virus uh, in that vaccine. Hmm. And when there are outbreaks, we absolutely offer that to pregnant women, just given the risk. And we followed up you know, tens of thousands of women that have gotten all kinds of live vaccines. And the only one we've ever really seen any kind of risk signal with is, is smallpox vaccine. Um, and since smallpox has been eradicated, you know, luckily we don't have to worry so much about that. But even, even from the vaccines that we do um, have a little bit more pause uh, when thinking about, you know, we haven't seen the theoretical risks manifest when, when women have unknowingly gotten these vaccines when they're pregnant or been given them in emergency use context. So mm -hmm. that's all really reassuring. I mean, maternal immunization more broadly is, is really a, a huge public health win. It's really done a lot to, to protect the health of both mothers and, and their babies, especially since, you know, mothers can often pass antibodies uh, to, to the fetus and to the newborn. Um, so that can have that bonus added protection. If I, if, if I was reading uh, up on, on some of your work correctly, this isn't the first time that you've tried to address endemic pandemic diseases, vaccine, vaccines and pregnant women. Um, tell me about some of your work, especially surrounding say the Zika virus. Yeah, so um, I had been doing some work with colleagues um, in the HIV space uh, starting about eight years ago um, because we had recognized that you know, there were huge gaps in terms of novel treatments, in terms of some of the prevention modalities that were coming out um, where pregnant women had been left out of, of the research um, enterprise. And then in the midst of doing that work, uh, we saw Zika kind of explode through Latin America it was so obvious that, you know, this was a case where we absolutely could not ignore uh, pregnant people in the context of this response. Um, so we got uh, some new work off the ground basically to look specifically at the vaccine pipeline for Zika um, and develop some guidance to try and figure out how do we both ethically and responsibly include pregnant women in that research agenda in ongoing vaccination efforts. Um, and then as a follow on to that, recognizing that, you know, we're in a space where we know that there are going to be other novel pathogens breaking out. Um, we had just kind of come on the heels of the, the West African Ebola crisis. We developed much broader guidance basically to say, here's the roadmap. There's a lot of activities that are happening in terms of preparing for what this novel disease X could be and a lot of investment in vaccines. Um, how do we make sure that pregnant women don't get left behind as they have been so many times before? Uh, moving forward. So we had published that guidance about two years ago. Um, and then, of course, it's quite timely now that uh, the world is combating uh, the COVID threat. So if I'm understanding correctly, pregnant women weren't part of any of the three phases of these vaccination trials. Yeah. So I think, you know, in many ways, uh, the Ebola crisis was a huge eye opener, generally speaking, for global health security and how we actually can respond to, to really large threats like this. But if you look at the issue with pregnancy, it was one area where we really did uh, a huge disservice to pregnant women in the context of, of fighting that epidemic. 
Um, they were not included in any of the vaccine trials that were conducted um, in any of the three countries where we oversaw the largest outbreaks. Um, and then, and this was also despite, you know, the WHO Research Ethics Committee saying, why aren't pregnant people being included in your phase three studies? You're doing these large field trials in the midst of a deadly pandemic or epidemic um, rather. And, um, and they still didn't get included. And then we saw the ripple effects of that just a couple of years later when there was the new reemergence of, um, of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so for the first several months of that response, while they were rolling out vaccines to the rest of the population, pregnant women and lactating women just were not eligible to be vaccinated. Um, and there were a number of people on the ground um, who were working with these communities and the women were saying, you know, you're sending us to our deaths. Um, we're here, we're the primary caretakers, you know, you come and you tell us this vaccine is safe, but then you won't offer it to us. Um, and so, you know, luckily that policy was able to be changed um, and eventually uh, pregnant lactating women were able to be offered uh, these highly efficacious vaccines. But it just goes to show you that again, it's not just getting unfairly excluded from, from the research or from the evidence base, it, it's really getting excluded from much wider um, and timely inclusion in public health efforts to combat these diseases. You mentioned a number of uh, countries and regions that are around the world. Uh, you're in Washington, DC. I'm in Calgary, Canada. Our two countries, Canada and the United States, the birth rate is, is, is maybe not as, as great as some of these other countries. You said the DRC and, and the like. Um, outside of North America, how big of a, like, like it, how, much of a how much of the population is pregnant and lactating women? So we know globally that about 213 million women are pregnant each year. In the U.S., it's about uh, 300,000 at any given time are, are pregnant. Um, and then when you consider um, the fact that pregnant women and lactating women are often lumped together, uh, despite being quite biologically distinct, um, but usually uh, they, they tend to get lumped together in policy recommendations. So if you are excluding um, pregnant and lactating women from vaccine rollout, particularly in places where you know, women have on average you know, five, six, seven children um, and are breastfeeding for up to two years, sometimes longer, I mean, you're basically talking about a huge chunk of, of you know, reproductive years of women's lives where they're just not going to be eligible um, to receive potentially life-saving vaccines. Um, so that's deeply problematic. And it's especially problematic as well when you think about just the composition of the health workforce. So 70% of the health workforce is women, many of whom are in their reproductive years. So not only are we sort of categorically excluding a huge swath um, of women from the benefits of, of scientific advancement and, and public health programming, but we're also leaving such a critical portion of our workforce and people who are on the front lines um, out of those benefits. You mentioned uh, the WHO has called for the inclusion of pregnant women in vaccine trials. And uh, recently, the U.S. National Institute of Health has made similar calls. Um, do trials, is this gaining traction with, uh, you know, the different companies that are uh, producing uh, vaccines? Yeah, I mean, I think in the past several years, we've seen uh, a real sea change. It sort of used to be we had to make the case for why it was really important um, to include pregnant women timely in that research development pro um, pathway, um, that clinical development pathway. These days, it's much more about the nuts and bolts of how and when can we do this and, and how do we sequence and, and also how do we incentivize enough. Um, it does cost money. It does take time. It is It can be quite a big lift. Um, but we've seen sort of a growing um, 
base of people that are really supportive. Um, it's not just sort of the few of us that have been working in the space for years, raising the issue. You know, we're hearing from all sorts of audiences, you know, well, what about pregnant women? When are we gonna have the data on them? Are they gonna be eligible um, both to participate in studies as well as to, to receive these vaccines? So um, yeah, it's interesting when we had started the work in the HIV space, uh, a colleague had said, you know, we know this is really important, but I feel like we just can't beat a big enough drum um, to get movement on this. And now I feel like there's a, a pretty loud and, and diverse percussion section. So it's, uh, it's nice to know that there's a, a much larger coalition of people that recognize the importance of this work. And, uh, and I think that's where we'll really start to see continued change. And to carry on your, your orchestra metaphor, you just need the conductors to, to, uh, to wave their wand to make it happen. <laughs> um, if, if maybe not if, but when I guess is 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 the the question of there is another epidemic pandemic that needs a new vaccine, and if a um, if pregnant women are included in the trials early on, uh, and it's assumed and it's and it's found that that these vaccines are safe for rollout to the general public, where should pregnant women sit, in your opinion? in terms of, of, of rollout. Here in Canada, uh, we're focusing on, on people in, in long-term care homes, the very elderly and healthcare workers. Where, where should pregnant women sit in that lineup? Yeah, you know, I think these, these are really challenging questions in terms of how to prioritize limited uh, doses of vaccine. Um, again, I think many uh, jurisdictions are trying to prioritize those who face the absolute greatest risk of mortality and morbidity. Um, as well as those who are really driving the response efforts, those on the front line. Um, and I think that that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I think in terms of pregnant women, I would say probably given that they are at greater risk than non-pregnant adults, they should be earlier on um, than sort of the general adult population. Um, but again, you know, as supply increases, you know, there's a lot of decisions that have to go in and a lot of morally relevant factors to try and prioritize those at the front. Um, what's, what's been really great, both in the US and Canada, at least, is that, you know, as um, vaccines have been rolled out to the workforce, to particularly the health workforce, um, I know that there have been many uh, women who are part of that workforce who have enthusiastically signed up and said, yes, absolutely, you know, please vaccinate me. So it's really great to see that they have not been excluded from those efforts and, and were eligible to, to get vaccinated. Carly, I imagine that uh, pregnancy and parenthood is fraught with with uh, worry and concern, how should this news from companies like Pfizer and BioNTech be seen by pregnant women, by people who are either considering or currently pregnant? I mean, I think this is good news. This means that, you know, all pregnant women, their providers are going to have real evidence to guide their decisions. So right now, you know, the, the guidance is sort of like, we haven't seen anything concerning coming out from the data that we have so far, both from the incident pregnancies that happened in trials, it was a few dozen, um, or at least in the States, there have been about 20,000 um, women who were pregnant who received the vaccine and they're in our registry, um, the VSAFE system. So, you know, we haven't seen any concerning signals, um, which is really great. The types of vaccines um, that are being used don't contain any live virus. So, you know, these aren't the ones that we necessarily uh, worry about in terms of even biologic plausibility of risk. 
Um, but I think, you know, actually having a robust evidence base should be a welcome development by, by all pregnant people, by all obstetric providers, because it means that we can have evidence-informed decision-making. Um, and, and to the extent that we continue not to see any concerning risk signals, you know, it's just that much more reassurance that I don't have to waffle and say, oh, you know, well, we just don't know. We can say, oh, well, here's the evidence, and now I can make an informed decision. This is Wise, produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy, at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay home. We'll see you soon.